1: Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to
0: Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets, to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Trevor Marshall. He is the CTO and he is the co-founder of Current, which also is our landlord. Trevor, welcome back and thank you for having us.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's like so nice in here now. Yeah, we're, we're getting it's like studios, out here, really right? Coming together, coming into its own.
0: You were yeah. one of our first OK Computer guests. I think we were probably doing it from a rental unit yep. somewhere. It was like a we. It was yeah. Embarrassing. This is but way nicer. It's way nicer. We got to it. Listen, we got a big show for you today here, people. We have our second edition of Funders. And founders, um, we have Ethan Agarwal. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Coterie. With Ajay Kamat, he is a partner at Pear VC, which led one of his very early rounds. We have a great conversation about the relationship between these two guys. We talk about the business of Coterie, what Ethan was doing before, and how Ajay had caught um, his attention uh, prior to the founding of the Coterie. That's a great conversation. So definitely stick around for that. Brought to you by our partners at RBC. Capital, the Funders and Founders series. And also, later this week, Guy and I are going to speak with Kara Swisher about her new book that's yet to come out. I've already read it. It's called The Burn Book, and it's awesome, people. And the first 100 listeners who leave a review of OK Computer in the Apple Podcast Store We're going to send you a free copy of that book, The Drill, send a screenshot of that review to contact At Risk Reversal, and Amanda will send you that book. All right, dude, bigger news, though. We walk in this morning. We were filming this, recording this Tuesday afternoon, Trevor, and a huge deal, not just in your space, but in the entire market. I think it's the biggest deal in a very long time since some of these big oil deals. It's Capital One Financial is spending $35 billion of their stock to buy Discover Financial. All right, let's break this down. When you saw that headline cross last night, what were your thoughts? want to talk about what are the implications just in traditional finance, but also fintech,
2: the timing of this deal, like everything from your guys' perspective. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, not just in the dollar value, which of course is like interesting to everyone who's in in, in the space, but just like the potential for what this could be, obviously, is what they're planning towards, the incorporation of the network. That's really what it's about. You've got one of the top 10, two of the top 10 issuers coming together and Discover bringing Discover Network, Pulse, Diner's Club, and actually creating sort of a closed loop ecosystem potentially with all of the Capital One. Now, what does this mean for Capital One's relationships with the other networks? I'm sure all there's tons of commitments that are in place, but longer term, really taking an Amex approach to what has been more sub- near very bottom of prime customers in a way that Amex doesn't really go near. It's super interesting. So the network, right?
0: So when we talk about these sorts of businesses, one of the biggest expenses in network fees, right? So like MasterCard gapped down like 3%. Visa was down like 2% at its lows. They've come back a little bit. One of the headlines that I saw is that Capital One is targeting network synergies. And I assume that means fees. So talk to us a little bit um, about that, how this deal, potential deal. And again, right? Regulators are going to come all over this thing because the combination of these two companies makes them one of the biggest card issuers in oh, the country. They'll,
2: they'll be up there. If not, J.P. Morgan's at yeah. the top. I don't know if this combined deal – I'm sure that like someone's done the math on I, this already. I think it's already. like maybe
0: 16 17% or maybe a little it's, higher. Yeah, in, it's going to be huge.
2: It might be helpful just walk through a little bit for people who are not familiar with how – Issuing, acquiring, and all that the payments networks work in these Visa and Mastercard. They operate what are called open loop, which is they've got issuers, which are generally banks or other financial institutions that give cards to people, and then acquirers, which are the merchants. Those are two completely disconnected entities, and you've got the network in the middle, disintermediating the connection. So they're routing when you go and, and you plug your Visa card in at Walmart. That runs through their rails, goes to whatever bank that's from, who can sign up to be an issuer on the network, approve it, and. Visa it brings a lot of value. Like open loop networks are extremely complicated and they're very sticky. But it, there's a cost for not having both sides. And then you get someone like Amex who verticalizes the whole thing. And if you're signing up for Amex as a merchant, you have an Amex account. If you sign up for Amex as a customer, you have an Amex account. Amex on both sides, they can remove a ton of the middlemen in the process and take that as margin. This is what. Capital One is likely going to be doing over the next five to 10 years as they hopefully they'll get those synergies sooner for from their perspective. But as they roll off their existing commitments with some of the open loop networks, like Visa and MasterCard, moving towards owning the customer and the network, and I'm sure eventually some of the merchant side too is probably in the horizon. This should be a huge margin expansion. For them. So what does this mean
0: for you guys? When you see this headline, I mean, you and Stuart, you founded this company, a lot of the things that you just described uh, that COF does and, and discover and then the mastercard, the visa, you were looking to actually get within the seams. You were looking to kind of disintermediate some of those processes. You were looking to take market share from some of these companies. What is What does this sort of mean for you? I, I know it doesn't change your mission at all. You guys are still serving a client base that you feel is underserved by the traditional financial services. But what was like some of your initial reaction? Because I'm sure you guys were either
2: on the phone very quickly with each other, had some sort of slacky thing going yeah. on or something. We serve customers that are not even that are not served by even Discover or Capital One. Our customers generally don't have great access to the credit system and they're very much the near prime specialists. But for deep, deeper subprime and the types of customers that we serve that have just have trouble with banking access, let alone credit access, this is it's a different space. And and I don't think them coming together is going to change that fundamentally. I think what could be interesting is really Amex's response to this, because Amex plays basically has a similar setup in terms of this more closed loop approach. What has been interesting to me is to see Amex start to bridge out and start to open up the issuing to other issuers that are not just in Amex, them moving a little bit more towards these open loops to to try to look at a wider distribution, says a lot. It probably maybe was an anticipation of something like this. Most likely not. But I think they're going to have to figure out how they – distribute going forward as this capital, I don't even know, what are they calling Is it just going to be Capital One Discover? Well, well, let's uh, talk about
0: from a regulatory standpoint, because again, you guys uh, obviously have been building for years when you think about current, and, and, and obviously you're pretty familiar with your competition. And you just mentioned that you're on a different part of the spectrum as, as it relates to the customers that these two companies serve, but then obviously American Express is on the way other end of this, how do you think regulators will view this? Do they like to see if JP Morgan is nearly 20% of an issuer here in the
2: States, does a stronger number two help their cause from a regulatory standpoint? Total speculation. It's going to be whoever's making that decision. I think you can make the argument either way. It's like, great, now you've got a counter to number one. And great, maybe you actually, I think the the stronger argument would be you have a more realistic counter to Visa MasterCard, which is sort of a duopoly in terms of the payment networks. But at the same time, you are talking about someone coming together and taking a massive percentage, not a majority. And so I think like the argument about this being like either antitrust or like this is way too much control. There's been regulation that prevents banks from getting too big in terms of like deposits for a very long time and set up because it was it's an attempt to mitigate systemic risk. So I don't know, you could you could be on either side of the argument. It seems like something that's probably good for the customers of both of those companies if there is that level of synergy and there's that margin expansion in theory, that should give Better pricing in a trickle down way to their customers. In reality, that probably just accrues to the shareholder value. But in theory, it should be good. Let's talk about the shareholder value because like a a Capital One, obviously, it's down
0: from its all time highs made a couple years ago. It's just below 140. It was 180 at the highs in 2021. Here's a company that's expected to grow earnings that say 10% this year on low single digit sales growth. Trades at a 10 multiple. Okay, so a 10 PE, like half of the market. Market multiple. On the flip side of that, American Express has just made new all time highs. It's up dramatically. It's gone literally since late October from about $140 to about $213, where it is today. So, again, all all time high above $150 billion market cap. And when I think about it's multiple, it's trading still below a market multiple, but much higher than that of a COF. So it's about 15% expected earnings growth this year on 9%, 10% sales growth, trading about 16 and a half times. So it's interesting to see the multiple disparity for higher growth. Is this a reflection on what the market perceives to be that when the consumer does
2: weaken, if we do go into recession,
0: yeah. a Capital One is going to have a harder time than American Express at first?
2: Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I think you have to split out the credit side of the business of what's generating the equity value there from what is in my opinion, the more interesting part of this deal, which is the network value and the longer term product value that comes with it. But Discover's last earnings before this, you can see consumer delinquencies hitting levels that were not expected. And in this softening in the more near subprime, near prime customers as they come out of Christmas, tax refunds haven't hit yet. You've got much higher credit to consumers. That should be like a bit of an anchor on the price because we have to go through that. And it's going to be very similar. It's really funny. I've noticed, listen, I've been in this business
0: for 25 years and I've noticed that no one makes deals like at really bad times in the market or the economy, like these sorts of MA sort yeah. of transactions. They do it usually when people are feeling a little better. And just to put like some sort of context on this, you know, this Discover Financial is trading $125. The deal, it's because it's going to take a long time to get through. There's going to be um, a discount placed on the $35 billion value. So it's not trading at the value. It's also going to trade with COF stock, right, as that moves because it's a stock for stock deal. But this DFS was trading at a 52-week low at $80 at the end of October. And now it's at $125. And, And before the deal was announced, it was $110. So my point is, it's interesting that we've already seen delinquencies starting to pick up.
2: Loan loss reserves pick up a little bit. And it's interesting to see this sort of deal now. This is like When you look at the network value, this has got to be a multi-year. This has been in the works. I'd love to know what those conversations looked like over the years because we would know, obviously, for sure. But it is a much bigger strategic play here when you think about how do you internalize the flow for hundreds of millions of consumers and what implications does that have by being part of the network and knowing who the merchant is a lot better? Can you make better risk decisions? So can you expand credit? offerings with the power of having that network and and the, the risk logic and decisioning logic built in. When you have better data, you make better decisions. And owning the network in addition to the customer means that you're just going to make better decisions. So you should be able to create a- asymmetry in the pricing of the credit that you're offering. So this should be, it's more than just the, hey, we'll internalize the network costs. This should be over the five-year horizon, we should be able to offer better credit to more people.
0: It's interesting that JP Morgan has a missed a beat. you think that this is a competitive sort of effort towards, let's say, the behemoth, and it, the stock is literally at all-time highs today. It's up on the day. <laughs> it doesn't have, no cares uh, whatsoever. <laughs> let's let's bring it back towards, let, let's say, you. Let's bring it back to Current and the, and the business you guys build. What does this mean for, let's say, fintech? And we don't actually have to speak specifically to Current, but obviously, you know, a lot of folks out there who are building a whole host of different products that that range in and out of from the network to the actual offerings and the like here. What does this mean for fintech? If you guys were all in this
2: big group chat, what would be the common sigh here? The common thing is big deals are great, just generally. Things, transactions happening. If you look over the last year, there's been a tremendous amount of gun shyness, not just on the IPO side, but in, even in, in private capital. And, and to show that there is appetite to do things, and, and it's in the, like in the sort of broadest stroke possible. This is a very big thing. Yeah. It shows that energy is coming back into the system. Like you said, deals don't happen when the market is just bad. Yeah. So what that allows folks to see is that, okay there is certain conditions in which you can be more strategic. And if some of the biggest players are getting more strategic, it should be a call to arms to a lot of the other issuers in the space, maybe some of the networks in the space of, hey, things are happening. How are you going to parry this? And that has a tremendous amount of impact into things like business development at at sort of (laughs) competimates that they might be working with, other networks, other big banks, other fintechs. So this will kick off a lot of conversations and those conversations will turn into deals yeah. and so like having a big splash in the water the, the ripples will go on for a long time
0: it's funny from the like my perch here I like know a lot of VCs and a lot of VCs were very focused on FinTech. It seems like there was some stuff that was definitely percolating over the last couple of months or so, really a lot of VCs thinking about how companies who made it through this very difficult period over the last few years put a couple of these companies together in one plus one equals four or five, right? Because if they made it through some of these difficult times that we had in the post COVID era, and it was weird for consumers, it was weird the way that they were flush with cash, the way that they spent it, the way that they couldn't spend it at a different times. Time and just some of the kind of technology they become accustomed to, right? The peer-to-peer, a whole host of things, right? So it's interesting. It just seems like there is. It, things feel pretty good right now. In another place where things feel pretty good, which is near and dear to your heart a little bit, is crypto here. And and so I'm looking at a chart of the Bitcoin. It's just above 52,000. It was probably a little above 53,000 a week ago. It's probably 170% or so off of its lows from a year ago. And the year ago lows, interestingly enough, came as some of the biggest regional banks in our country went under. So we're almost on the anniversary of that, which I also think... So it's interesting that we have this huge deal announced a year after that period. But back then in March of last year, it was interesting that crypto sold off with like traditional risk assets or so, right? So we had this run up into the spot Bitcoin ETF, and people were pretty geeked up about that, sold off. And then it's rallied. And it's rallied as the dollar has rallied, which is kind of interesting. And you know what's also interesting? Gold hasn't rallied. So your nerd gold has rallied a lot. And then gold, which you probably don't own any of and never would or anything like that. I, I own can, Pax Gold. Do you? Okay. okay. But it can't get <laughs> out of its gold. own way. So, talk to me. What's going on with Bitcoin? Because I just got, obviously, you could tell I got my hair cut this morning. It looks pretty good, right? Yeah, it does look and good. I so my I was, barber, was Eddie, who is a maestro, by yeah. the way. Okay. And he trades a little bit of crypto. He's asking me, what's up with Bitcoin? I said, you know what? I'm going to talk to my boy Trevor today. You're going to have to listen to the pod tomorrow. So, what is going on with Bitcoin? Because if you think about what happened at the end of 2022 with SBF and XTX and all that sort of stuff, that sort of stuff. And it was just a crescendo lower. People were freaked the you-know-what out. And then the regional banking crisis, and then the fact that it seemed correlated to those traditional risk assets in the financial sector. But here we are a year later from that. It's a very different story.
2: I think this rally is definitely different. This feels private flows related to the ETF. And the way it feels different is there's almost no consumer exuberance in the way that there was two years ago, three years ago. You've got a SPF's first prison photo released. The, The past is a little bit, Behind us, FTX claims are paying out at 100%. explain that for a second? So
0: <laughs> so the big, the beef was is that they had FTX, which was basically a brokerage, a crypto brokerage. And then they had this hedge fund, Alameda, right? And so when Alameda borrowed money, supposedly, from, not supposedly, I mean, it was ruled against them, against FTX, and used it to do a whole host of things, a payoff, I guess there were payoffs, politicians and trips and this and that and everything. And then they were trading and they came up with all these strategies. How is it though, then FTX
2: customers, is it STF customers are getting paid back at 100%? It's the Alameda investors who lost money? The way that people lost money is you put your money into FTX, you're trading. You've got, let's say, a Bitcoin there. Right, And then it shuts down, you can't withdraw, the Bitcoin stays there. So people had crypto assets that were sitting on there that had a certain dollar value at that point in time. What FTX was doing with that cash was they made a lot of private company investments. So yeah, they got the big AI investment, which is actually a large part of why they're able to pay the claim back. There was also a ton of crypto that was still there that they were able to make available, claw back, the prices up which helps quite a lot. I don't know if the claims are being paid back in the crypto or in a dollar value marked at where it went under, which was a different price. Very fortunately, as a U.S. resident, I didn't have an FTX account and and, and, and wasn't involved with that. But there is like a feeling that we as an industry have moved through that situation and, and a little bit past it. There's a sense of closure And certainly having now very legitimate ETFs out in the market has been the main focus when you talk to people who are a little bit more informed. But like I said before, there's none of the same NFT yeah. style exuberance. It's going to come, though. I mean, it, like, think about it. Like, yeah. like
0: look, there's going to be something that comes next. And I want to get to WorldCoin in a second here. But I'm just looking at, like, Coinbase, for instance. OK, so Coinbase just rallied in the last, like, month or so, like 60 70%. OK, and they put up this quarter. And, and investors liked it. and The stock was rallying. And I'm looking at this. And I'm saying, for 2024, they're supposed to do $4.24 billion in revenue, 4.46 in 2025. I'm looking at gap earnings. And they're supposed to do this. year 97 cents next year 75 cents so it's trading at 147 times this year's earnings 170 So the whole narrative to me about all these spot Bitcoin ETFs being listed is that for a lot of folks who want access to this market, they can just do so now with a Fidelity ETF and they can put it in an IRA. They don't have to have a wallet, right, or any of that sort of stuff. They don't have to be fearful of a lot of the shenanigans that were going on in some of these exchanges that were regulated. Now, Coinbase is obviously a stalwart here. They've made it through a couple crypto winters. They seem to have taken a lot of share. They're going to be doing a lot of custodial work for a lot of these ETFs. Talk to me a little bit about that, because there's still not many ways for folks to express views other than actually buying the coins. Now you have the spot ETFs, there will be others, there will be an ETH, right? But Coinbase has clearly been one that people in the equity markets have reflected a view on. So talk to me a little bit about that, because it's still really volatile. And this is a company that is not hockey sticking anymore, you know what I mean, as far as growth in earnings and sales. And you could make the argument that they might have tremendous headwinds if these ETFs lower the volatility and therefore the bid. Spread gets smaller, and they're going to be able to charge
2: less for their fees on them. I think you already called it out. Like Coinbase is doing a lot of the custody for these things. They have changed their focus internally to be a lot more about market aggregation and standing up the trading infrastructure, which is not as consumer-facing. Higher consumer trading volumes. That's still a large part of their business. But they've, ever since their acquisition of Bison Trails, now I think like four plus years ago they've been moving more and more towards the coin infrastructure as a service which is now going to be the backbone for a lot of these much bigger things like the etfs and larger trades so i think they're emerging and continue to go in this direction of more of an infrastructure company than a consumer company that's where the stability will be because they're going to be charging software fees instead of trading volume. And that, that's where the, the but business But there will be a transition.
0: Work. As investors have to figure that out yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to
2: me- Trading prob- volume still dominates. Yeah.
0: You're probably, though, if you want exposure to this space, you're probably, and again, this is not a recommendation, but you're probably better off getting exposure to actually Bitcoin, yeah. whether it be through- It's it always been the case. Than, than Coinbase. So right now, where it is right now at multi-year highs. And again, so I just find that really interesting. And so I think the, the next thing that you and I are both waiting for is to see what sort of silliness comes back, right? Whether it's- what sort of NFT stuff or whatever. And the last thing I'll just say about Coinbase is, Brian Armstrong means business. Whenever I see him on CNBC now, he is wearing a suit and a tie. It's no longer like <laughs> yeah, the, the, the wrinkled T-shirt to, it's or anything the move like to that. Institutional. I want to talk about what's going on in the markets today specifically. Again, this is Tuesday afternoon. You and I and Stu, we chat about it all the time at the water cooler. Uh, well, not all the time, but every once in a while. What's going on in, in the AI space at first after ChatGPT was launched in late 2022 and caught the markets by storm, it was the hyperscalers. It was, it was Microsoft. And, and obviously they had the catbird seat as far as the investment in OpenAI and access to ChatGPT and how they're going to integrate it into their productivity tools and the like and Google was always chasing with Bard, and now it's Gemini and then there's upstarts like perplexity which I've been using a lot and really and so I actually think it's interesting that people right now are talking about perplexity relative to Google the way people were talking about Google relative to let's say Microsoft and some of the embedded things like back in 2000 2001 or so. We're in an Interesting period, but a lot of the focus this year, specifically the massive outperformance, has been the semiconductors and Nvidia in particular. At its highs last week, I think it had gained 850 billion dollars in market cap this year alone, and they're going to be reporting Wednesday. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably going to be uh, Wednesday afternoon, and it seems like some of the air is coming out of this a little bit. And I'm just curious how you think about that because a you're a builder, you're more of a software guy, but when you think about, it, I'm sure all your friends last year were scurrying around trying to buy these high-end GPUs to do whatever it is in any business that wanted to train these models or integrate them or have the servers to operate this. Talk to me a little bit about how you're thinking about this year over year because you and I did talk about this a year ago when the BARD launch didn't go particularly well and people were really excited about ChatGPT4. I'm just curious, give me your 411. It's not stock market call or this and that. Maybe more from a, a vibe check, if you will.
2: Yeah, so I think a year ago I talked about, I think ultimately the ones who win are the ones that have the servers and like the cloud infrastructure. So I'm still quite bullish on Google being able to be the, the main market dominant player here with OpenAI's integration with Microsoft. They also have access to a tremendous amount of workload capable machines. If you look at it, so the Bard, yeah, Google's like terrible at when it comes to branding these products, but generally what they put out is is best in class and you can see that in their cloud offering. The products that they offer, they're things that, you know, are down to the physical wire Better than competitors and Gemini 1.5, which was announced last week or the week before. I'm not sure if you saw the demo where they uploaded a 40-minute video and that kind of stuff is like the expansion and in, in sort of the the context that the model can have is extremely impressive. And the team at Google is like, this is when I talk to the folks at Google Cloud who we work with. It's one of their sole focuses, and that the acceleration and the product availability has been so extreme that it's like it's a little like almost unhinged how quickly. They they're releasing stuff. I still think that whoever has the the servers and and then ultimately the the team to come up with better and better techniques will have an advantage. But let's not forget that at the end of the day once there's a trained model, the cost of doing one of those inferences is extremely low. So it only takes one licensing agreement from Google to someone else to like just license this relatively once the model is trained, other people can pick up the inference. On their cloud.
0: And so that's why I
2: think the economics of of how this market develops isn't super clear yet. You've got Sam Altman coming out talking about raising trillions of dollars for semiconductors. And my gut reaction to it is it's it reminds me a lot of when ASICs, so application specific integrated chips, were being developed for Bitcoin mining. And there was this huge gold rush around developing smaller and more efficient chips. And ultimately, that still makes sense because you have to run the algorithm. You have to create hashes that you're submitting to the Bitcoin lottery in order to win a block. But that's not the case with these models. The work is done up front and then inferences are very cheap. And so what will be, I think, really interesting is the economics that evolved as we go more and more multimodal into like video and probably eventually like live stream types of workloads is going to be all the infrastructure around the model, which is how well Can you store video? What is the processing throughput to these things? Things that are not like machine learning based, but are just cloud infrastructure and infrastructure based. So I still think Google has like a huge advantage here and we'll see how things evolve. It's interesting
0: that you feel that way. And I think a lot of folks who know Google really well and they've seen like how they moved into the cloud over the last 10 years and how they've taken share from Amazon and really held up well against Microsoft and the like. The stock has actually been in the penalty box a little bit, not for the reasons that you just just mentioned, for the reasons about BARD, the reasons about Gemini not looking up to snuff as it relates to, let's say, GBT4, which is interesting because Google trades at a market multiple versus a Microsoft that trades at 35 times its earnings at one of the highest multiples it has in a long time. Obviously, Amazon's a bit more expensive. So it's been put in the penalty box for not having the commercialized product that people are getting
2: excited about right now. I think that's the voting machine at work, which is it doesn't look like a winner right now. Yeah. They don't even have an iOS app. So, like, the fact that they announced Gemini
0: Advanced without an iOS app seems kind of odd. Now, obviously, they're very entrenched with Android, but it just seems
2: to me like if you want to compete. Yeah, they haven't yet. And this is so typical for a lot of the other cloud stuff. The go-to-market is a bit messy. But ultimately, if they're able to tie it in to the full cloud offering, which is where the bigger, like, the apps, frankly, they're... Cute. It's fun. I I have Chat GPT Plus. I think it's really fun. I enjoy it. I get capped out after an hour of using it, and I can't do anything useful in it because I get capped out before I can do anything. Even with the paid version. Even with the paid version, I cap out because I'm doing. I'm trying to. I'm like. I'm testing the limits on what it can do with file manipulation and some. This. It's probably just using. It's heavier usage than others. But the the limits. They're hilarious. It's a magic when you're using it, and then you hit a limit, and you're like, I guess I can't actually do anything useful with this. And so integrating it actually. On the back end into products is the way that this stuff will distribute where thousands of inferences a minute for most platforms and so google is better positioned to wire that stuff through i don't know that many startups that are on azure there's a lot of government workloads on there and there's a lot of big enterprise that's on there but in terms of people who are generally pushing the boundaries most of us build on aws and gcp and aws doesn't have a great answer to this yet. But I guess yeah. if, if
0: I was Microsoft, I'd be pretty happy for the, the government connection. Like, like oh, for, for sure. For, the, for this thing for to, sure. to go yeah, yeah. and go. And and the last thing, I guess what I'll just say here is that I think there needs to be a cooling off period a little bit. Just when you look at NVIDIA gaining the way it did, it went from 500 to $800 essentially in a straight line based on what their customers and their competitors had to say over the last month and a half or so. It just seems like a lot of enthusiasm has been pulled forward. So the moment oh. that we see... And and every day I see a new headline in the information about how Microsoft is lurking to diversify away from their reliance on NVIDIA, creating their own things, designing their own this, and we keep hearing that. And so ultimately, I just feel like NVIDIA is going to first have a quarter where they don't beat as much as people expect, and they don't guide as high for the next quarter as people expect. And then there's going to come a quarter this year where they actually guide below where consensus is, and then it's over. The premium comes out because then, to your point, there was a credit analyst two weeks ago at Barclays. There's not a single analyst on Wall Street. There's 50-some that covers NVIDIA that have a hold or a sell on the stock, I think. Most of them have buys. There's a credit analyst who made the exact point that you did. It's like they're funding their customers, A. B, once you go from this training phase to the inference phase, there's going to be much less demand at a time where a lot of their customers, and they have a huge customer concentration, it's Alphabet, it's Microsoft, it's Meta, and it's Amazon. I think they're like 45% of their... As soon as that slows down... They're done. And once that happens, then I think it gets over to the software guys. It gets over the hyperscalers. And so that's what I'm worried about right here. Does that make sense to you? It totally,
2: no, that's exactly right. That's the thing that I don't think is fully appreciated yet. I, and I think that credit analyst is exactly on, which is, this is different than like ASIC development. It, ASICs and Bitcoin, you need to run them in order for the thing. And you, you, you just always need more. As long as that's how Bitcoin works, that's what you need to do. But this is different. Like the model training, is that initial period. And then the value comes from the inferences. The value doesn't come from a trained model that doesn't get inferenced is worthless. And so it'll be, I think the value over time goes to the people that have the infrastructure around making inferences better. And the one exception to that might be if there is some sort of constant training that's being done off of a live stream type of feed where you're constantly retraining. And these are are most likely techniques that don't exist yet, like mathematically in the computer science, but eventually having to run those at all times so that you're constantly producing new versions. Maybe there's some of that, but I don't think people are are really thinking in that So. OpenAI keeps wowing
0: people. Last week, they introduced Sora, their text-to-video it's cool. model. It's, I'm sure you've been messing around with it a little bit. And it seems like every day there's a new crazy headline about Sam Altman, what he did do, what he didn't do, what he's doing that you don't know about yet. Is Sam Altman going to be the first trillionaire on this planet? Because I feel like he's in the catbird seat for it. I'm just curious thoughts because I remember a time where we thought what Bill Gates was worth or Steve Jobs was worth or obviously Elon Musk now supposedly worth hundreds of billions of dollars. It seemed something that was impossible. Trillion dollar market cap seemed impossible. Now we have two, three trillion dollar market caps. You know what I'm saying?
2: (laughs) I don't know him personally. I've only listened to the interviews that he's done. I think like having met people who are very wealthy, everyone's just people. And I think if I'm being like very objective, there's probably a route in which Open API becomes that that valuable. But I don't personally see it for the reasons I've just laid out. That ultimately, Open AI will easily be a uh, you called it Open API actually. By the way, oh did is, I? Yeah, that's
0: such a CTO move uh, right
2: there. Open no. a- Open <laughs> API 3.0 yeah, Swagger. So, no, but like most important like technical like pr- pr- pretty, standard. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, <laughs>
0: pretty good chance that at some point trillion dollar market cap. If an Nvidia can trade at 35 times sales or something like that, there's no reason why. I company like this growing the way they are with the partners that they have and all that sort of stuff. But again, you think that there's a good chance that maybe he is a bit more for the people a little bit? I don't
2: know. I just think like open AI itself I I don't know how it becomes a trillion dollar company because once the model's there, they need to invest heavily into like how to actually roll that out for people to use it and people to pay for it. I'm paying 20 bucks a month. I don't think it's particularly worth it right now because like anytime I pay from a a consumer perspective, anytime I start to get into a groove of doing something useful, I run out of of quota. And then I'm like, all right, I'll wait two hours and then I'm not doing it anymore. So I don't see the business model totally there yet. Like they've got, I'm sure, an amazing licensing agreement with Microsoft. And that makes Bing awesome and all these things. But um, I think there's a lot more when it comes to the economics of this space.
0: Listen, we cover a lot of ground. Really important, I think, that this discussion between these models going from the training phase to the inference phase, I just feel like this is going to be something we hear a lot, especially if some of these chip companies start disappointing. This is before AMD even has in mass scale, like their competitive chip to the high-end processors that um, NVIDIA is doing. I think this could be a narrative. of Totally. T- and,
2: and you know what, what's funny about it is by the time we make that transition is when the actual value starts getting created. I can imagine a market narrative where you go, NVIDIA is done, so AI is done, yeah. this thing is over. But actually at that point, if they are actually no longer needed, they've served their purpose, yeah. But that was the so value comes through. But that was my point, is like stock market narratives are sometimes very
0: different than what's actually happening in Total. practice. And so like if you pulled forward all this excitement in such a small group of stocks and they're the anointed ones... It's it's not likely to play out that way. I mean, that's been my experience over the last 25 years in the markets and having a front row seat for the dot-com era, inflation and then deflation, but then see what was born in the ashes of that. That's where the trillion dollar companies were really born from, you know what I mean? When you think about it, what they did in the mid-2000s, really not what they did in the late 90s, if you will. So, all right, Trevor, we covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate all your color on this Capital One Discover financial deal, and obviously everything you had to say as far as the implications on fintech, very interesting stuff. And of course, this open AI and this battle that's playing out with all the hyperscalers and with upstarts like Perplexity, I find this really fascinating. And I think that that's going to be the story of like how some of these companies grow into those valuations that they were anointed with last year in the private markets. And if we ever see them in the public markets anytime soon, maybe they get gobbled up. Maybe we start to see some more MA. Who knows? Yeah. Let's see. Well, hopefully you'll come back very soon. I appreciate your time. Stick around, everyone. We have a great conversation our Funders and Founders series with Ethan Agarwal and Ajay Kamat. And be sure to leave us a review and stick around for next week when we have Kara Swisher on. Leave a review. Get a copy of her burn book. Thanks for being here.
1: Cross River Bank member FDIC. In today's hyper-fast markets, it's never been more important to consider every option to raise capital, drive growth, and create value. Stay one step ahead with Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets. In this season, RBC's experts will examine how corporates and investors are evaluating their strategic plans, reassessing their portfolios, and reallocating capital to help them lead today and define tomorrow. Tune into Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets Podcast today.
0: Welcome back to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by Ethan Agarwal. He is the co founder and CEO of The Coterie, and Ajay Kamat. He is a partner at VC and a early investor and Ethan's company, The Coterie. Welcome, guys.
3: Hey, thanks for having us.
4: Thanks for having us, Dan.
0: All right, really excited about this. You guys are an early part of the funders and founders series that our friends over at RBC Capital are hosting here. And the whole idea, and you guys have probably heard a couple of these already, is put together some founders of some really interesting companies, things that we think are relevant to our audience and the folks that kind of saw the vision for those companies early on. And you guys are a really unique combo because it's not just the Coterie, Ajay, that you invested as far as Ethan is concerned, but his first company, Aptiv. So I'd love to kind of set the stage a little bit. Ethan, maybe you want to kind of talk to us about your background before we got to the founding of Coterie, because again, you are a two-time founder here and looking at your bio and talking to you, you and I met at Money 2020 in the fall, and I got to hear the story back then and that at that point, I was fairly well convinced this would be something that our listeners would be interested in hearing about. So talk to me a little bit about your background, and I'd love to hear a little bit of uh, Ajay's also.
3: Prior to the Coterie, I was the founder and CEO of a company called Aptive, a digital fitness company. Our office was two blocks from here. But what we did is we created audio-based workout content. So the easiest way to think about it is like Spotify, but for fitness. Mm-hmm. So we charge 10 bucks a month. You get access to this large on-demand content library. And our thesis was that audio is actually a better delivery medium than video for certain kinds of workouts, because you don't want to be staring at your screen when you're doing yoga or running down the street. So instead, we provided guidance, music, motivation just through audio. And if you look today, you know, every major fitness company is doing audio. We were the first ones to do it back in 2016. So I ran that company for about six years. We grew it to $100 of revenue. We had a million paying subscribers in 20 countries, reasonable size business. And then after year five or so, the LTV CACs were getting tough to maintain because CPMs were growing up in all the regular platforms and CTRs were you know up, but not significantly. And so the CACs were spiking. And so we said, we need to figure out distribution. And so we ended up selling it to a private equity firm in Q1 of 21. Prior to Aptiv, I was at McKinsey for three years in the finance practice. Before that, I was at a hedge fund. It was a merger ARP fund. It was a really interesting fund, taught me a lot about public markets investing. I did my MBA for Morton, and I started my career in investment banking. So I actually spent like 10 years or so on the finance strategy side before starting my first company and have now been doing startups for the last eight years or so.
0: Yeah. So Anadja, you started out as a founder and found yourself to be a, an investor. Talk to me a little bit about your background.
4: I'm a partner at Pair. I've been at Pair since 2015, so just over eight years now. I'm a generalist investor, but Pair, we really specialize in pre-seed and seed investing. And the way that I got into Pair was I was first a founder. I was a founder of a consumer company called Wedding Party, and Pear was actually one of our very early investors. So after we ran that company, grew it, and then ultimately sold it, I joined Pear as the first partner on the team outside of the founders. And at Pear, I really focus on our pre-seed investing. So I really specialize in two people and an idea. And a lot of what we do is focus on, you know, the person or the set, the founders that are actually starting the company. And that's kind of the genesis of how I started working with Ethan.
0: Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about like when, when you had this second opportunity and we're going to get to the coterie in a second, like when you knew that he was going to do something else, you were all in once again, like, is that something that has been consistent through your career as a VC or since, you know, dating back obviously to 2015, have you invested
4: in uh, a one founder on multiple occasions before? Look, starting a company is super, super hard, right? And we invest in many first-time founders and sometimes they're successful, but many times they're not. We find that people, they learn a ton through that first experience. And if they still have the desire and the drive to start another company, they're starting off with like a big step up from the first time around. So we try all the time to back founders that we've previously partnered with because they're just significantly more in tune with what it's going to take to get a company off the ground. And the second Ethan started, you know, calling me and ideating and talking about new concepts. I called my partners and said, look, Ethan's going to start something. We have to be the first person to write a check. And as soon as he was willing and able to take our capital, um, we made that happen.
0: All right, talk to me a little bit about that process. Okay, so you have this you know, the successful business. You sell it to private equity. You probably feel like pretty good run right there. Did you want to go right back into starting a new company? And then what, what were some of the ideas that you were kicking around at the time?
3: Well, so this idea for the Coterie actually came to me probably two years into my first company. Not as refined as it is now, but there was a problem that was sort of stuck in my head. And I said, someone has to solve this. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward four years later, I sold Aptive, and I found myself with some free time. And turned out no one had solved that problem. And so when I sold Aptiv, first of all, like, you know, I think it was a great experience and a great journey. I consider it a double, maybe like a triple. I wouldn't consider it a home run, definitely mm-hmm. not a grand slam. Mm-hmm. So I didn't walk away feeling like I'm done. I felt like, you know, I have more to prove. There's more I can do in this game. And so I just had this itch to like start something. I told my wife I would take a year off. It ended up being like six weeks. We recently had our second kid and you know, I was texting Ajay being like, hey, I'm kind of floating this idea. A couple weeks later, I incorporated it. Because like, I think Ajay will tell you, and at least my two senses, the people that should be starting companies are when you like can't wake up without thinking about Mm -hmm. that thing, right? And so if I found myself repeatedly waking up thinking about that thing, then it's an itch that needs to be scratched, or it's like a thorn in your head. And you're like, I got to go resolve that problem. Mm -hmm. And so you can take a week or two weeks or a month off, but ultimately, you're not going to, be satisfied until you go solve that thing.
0: You and I have talked about kind of the impetus for starting the Coterie, and it wasn't one of those things where you were like looking out at like an existing business and saying, you know what, there's something wrong there that I think I can kind of attack maybe through software or through through some sort of different mechanism. This was a problem that you had in your own life about like the way you were being serviced right in the financial services industry so talk to me a little bit about that so you said that this was a problem that you had when you were active and you just didn't have a whole heck of a lot of time to focus on it what was the problem and kind of how did the the business model evolve
3: yeah i could have taken the elon musk approach i guess and done like five different companies at once but i (laughs) I don't have it in me to do that. I guess. Um, so what happened is Aptiv was growing and company was doing well. And I turned off my salary and I went to apply for a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And the guy says, we can't give you a mortgage. You don't have a salary. And I said, well, if you look at my cash and my assets and equity and everything, like clearly I'm not going to default, but they couldn't figure out that someone without a salary could afford a mortgage. And then I remember thinking to myself, like almost everyone that I know makes a lot more money from their assets than they do from their salary. And those assets can be alternative investments. They could be carry, they could be equity in a startup, whatever it is. Mm. But our salaries tend to be a very small part of our total package or compensation. And so the fact that a very large institution hasn't come to the point where they realize there's all these people making all this money that has nothing to do with their salary, and salary is actually a really bad way of assessing the risk for that group, said to me like, oh shit, there's an opportunity here. And so that was frustrating to me. And then A couple years later, my wife and I went to speak to a wealth manager. And, you know, the guy does his whole sort of song and dance, and he gives us literally a binder. And the binder has a portfolio recommendation of 60, 40 stocks and bonds. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, we were, I was 33 or something at the time. You know, I had hopefully 50 plus years ahead of me. I have no interest in doing 60, 40. And I'm certainly not paying you 50 bips to do 60, 40 for me. I'm interested in learning about crypto and I want to LP into funds and I'm interested in real estate. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to learn about. But this top tier bank that employs thousands of financial advisors couldn't figure out how to target me as a demographic. Mm -hmm. And so those two things put that thorn in my brain. And I was like, hang on, there's got to be a better way to build product to take care of the finances for people who make more money from assets than salary. Aj is an investor, right? Investors make most of their money from their carry. Mm -hmm. I'm a startup guy. Every startup person I know makes money from equity. So how come the big institutions and the large banks? are not focused on delivering products to us? That was like the question that I couldn't answer. And as I did more research, I realized no one is focused on that. And so that's where the Coterie came to be. So, Ajay, when you were
0: talking to your partner, said, we got to back Ethan. Was this an idea that resonated with you and your partners? Because I suspect that at some point in the not so distant past, you guys were all
4: faced with some of these similar sort of dilemmas as from the banking system. I think that this cohort of potential customers that Ethan was talking about doesn't represent like the majority of the country, Mm -hmm. but certainly in technology and in venture, was everyone that we knew, including ourselves. And so it was like very visceral when he explained the idea to me. I was like, yep, me, my siblings, all our friends. You know, in this industry, face these same challenges. And at a minimum, I thought, okay, this is a great entry point into this ecosystem and we can start here because this is an untapped market. All right.
0: So here we are. You got lots of good feedback about what you're trying to solve here. So, how does the business model evolve? Because again, you just said you didn't want to pay a wealth manager 50 bips for a traditional 60 40. You had to come up with a better mousetrap, right? Yeah. And I'm assuming you did not want to employ the thundering herd, you know, going back to, you know, Merrill Lynch, this was going to be a tech solution.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So first of all, this is a software company. We are not a wealth management company. We don't do any kind of advisory work. We don't employ advisors. We employ software engineers, product builders, designers, and all of our products are software only. The way the company has evolved is actually really interesting over the last 24 months. So we started with a realization that when you invest in alternative assets, and by that I mean LP into a VC fund or private equity fund or hedge fund or whatever, that world is stuck in like 30 years ago. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a lot of like PDFs uploaded to portals that look like they were designed in 1996. And you're paying stuff manually and you're getting reporting manually. And it's okay if you're, you know, Ohio Teachers Pension Plan or some massive organization, but there's been a spike in the number of people that are LPs in alternative assets, specifically within our demographic. So it's not just large institutions anymore. It's individuals like, you know, the three or four of us that are talking right now. And so what ends up happening is um, we can't assess the value of our investments properly. And that's insane because the majority of our wealth is in these alternative assets. So that's that's one side, the problem of the LP side. We've also understood there's a problem on the GP side, which Ajay can probably talk about, which is managing your LPs is actually a massive pain in the ass. And so what we decided is we're going to build a series of products that help the LPs of alternative assets and the GPs of alternative assets. And there's demand on both sides to solve that problem. And the legacy businesses we're fighting against, so to speak, are very domain focused and are not thinking of it from a holistic perspective. So you'll find solutions that do part of each of the things that we do. So someone that does KYC, someone that does subdocs, someone that does capital calls, someone that does a portal. And as a result, you have LPs like myself. I'm an LP in seven different funds. I have to log into four different portals every time there's a new file or quarterly report or K1 or capital call. And I don't have a guy that does it. I just do it myself. We have a guy on the platform. He has 80 different fund investments and he doesn't have a guy. He just does it himself because it's a massive pain in the ass until he found the coterie. So we solved that problem for the LPs. I think Ajay can probably explain to you what that problem looks like for the GPs. Yeah,
0: so again, on the GP side, it's kind of interesting because you just talked about like this is not a TAM that most VCs are probably that attracted to, right? But it has the potential to get really meaty and now it's a two-sided market for that matter.
3: Well, on the TAM point, like I think that TAM from an N perspective is not massive, but the TAM from a dollars perspective is fucking huge, right? The, the alternative assets industry is $12 trillion. And so the reason the TAM doesn't look big is because the number of people is not that much, but the dollars at work is massive, right? So there's 25 million millionaires in the United States. About 3 million of them are under the age of 40. And something like 60% or so are allocating investments or allocating dollars to alternative assets. So we're talking about call it a couple million people. But the LTVs of these people is massive. And the best comp for this is there's a company called Personal Capital from a couple years ago. They got bought by Empower Financial. They targeted people that had only $100,000 of wealth and above. So they're even sort of down market from our audience. But they sold for a billion dollars and they had 22,000 customers. So that means they're ascribing a $50,000 LTV per customer for that demographic. And our demographic is on the higher end and we aspire to have significantly more than $22,000. So we can create a multi-billion dollar company with just tens of thousands of customers because the LTVs are so
0: high. Yeah, and, and Ajit, tell us about the, like the experience on the GP side of things, because I'm sure any opportunity that you have to make that user experience for your LPs a, a bit smoother, it's kind of less of an admin burden for your fund, and you guys can spend more time on the things that you guys like doing the best.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we want to spend as much time with founders as we possibly can, not dealing with all the back office management, focusing on managing the LPs, the capital calls, the subscription docs and that's truly like a pain right so to give you a sense we have both large institutional investors and many individuals we have friends and family we have you know folks in our network other founders that want to invest in pair managing those individual LPs is a huge pain right so you have to get every single doc from all these individuals capital calls are a mess we have to do them all manually and just to give you a sense about how bad it is like even me and my partners miss our capital calls all the time. And it's not because we don't care. We we care a lot about our fund. We're just super busy and our finance people have to call us and we feel like horrible that we miss these things, but they're just like bugging us all the time. And it wasn't until the Coterie where we could take all of our funds and all of our capital calls, put them in one place, that this process started to become significantly easier. And there's just no technology on the back end that we were really using. And the Coterie really enables a completely different experience.
0: Yeah, so Ethan, let's talk about this. I heard you on Bloomberg TV, I think it was a, a few months ago, and it, it was a stat that I just thought was pretty astounding in a way. So it was talking about individuals, okay, and just kind of, you had some data around how they're looking more towards alternatives. To many folks, who are sophisticated accredited investors, the idea of a 60-40 equity fixed income portfolio is not that interesting, especially when you live in a world before, let's say 2022, this ZERP world, where alternatives were benefiting a great deal, right, from this low interest rate environment. But you said something, I think it was KKR, you said the subsequent raises, they're looking for 40% from individual investors. That actually absolutely shocked me a little bit. And so that just speaks to, I think, the platform That you have built and the opportunity that you're allowing individual investors to kind of access those markets in a way that it just would have been, I I, I don't know, it would have been really cumbersome, I guess. And that's the experience that you had. And you had access to those investments, but it really became a cumbersome kind of way in which to manage them.
3: Yeah. So you're bringing up a great point, which is that the demand is happening on both sides. So individuals who are LPs are looking to invest in alternative assets. But the GPs of places like KKR, and by the way, it's Apollo, it's Blackstone, it's all the large asset managers. One fund manager who's responsible for fundraising at a $100 billion fund told me he's about to raise a $20 billion fund, and he expects 20% of that $20 billion, so $4 billion, to come from individual investors. And they don't have a single dime from individual investors Mm -hmm. today. So it's the full gamut of GPs that are looking to individual investors for their next set of funds, or at least some percentage of it. And why is that? So there's a couple of reasons. One is the traditional LPs, institutions, pension plans, etc., you could argue are tapped out because they're only allowed to uh, issue a certain percentage of their portfolio to a specific strategy. And when the denominator falls in terms of all the valuations in the last 48 months, that means that their numerators are kind of screwed up. And so they can't allocate any more to the traditional sort of venture private equity firms. So that means that if you want to raise more capital, you have to look somewhere else. And 24 months ago, prior to the coterie, prior to a few other companies, Access was a big problem. You couldn't get access to these large high-quality alternative assets, mm-hmm. asset managers. And then the coterie came along. And, and I'll give credit to a number of other companies like Allocate and Titan and a few others that have also provided access to these large alternative assets. So I don't think access is the differentiator anymore. Now the differentiator is the process mm-hmm. because as you know, Ajay and Per don't want to spend time dealing with paperwork and bullshit. Mm-hmm. KKR and Apollo and those guys definitely don't want to spend time dealing with that paperwork and bullshit. And so that's where the coterie comes in, is we say, we will not only help the LPs manage their investments in you, we will help the GPs take care of all their KYC and subscription documents, capital calls and reporting. And most of the time, by the way, a lot of these large funds, not to get into the nitty gritty, but they don't have uh, external fund administrators, so they're doing it themselves. And so they have these massive finance teams that are doing an inordinate amount of just like manual human work that should be done by software, not only because it's faster and cheaper, but also because it's better. And that's where the product really shines. So talk to me, you know, again, this is about a year ago. We had
0: um, obviously SVB, First Republic Signature. We had a handful of banks that service this community that you're talking about not on the GP side and the LP side. And I'm just curious because you probably, for a whole host of reasons, whether it be you, Ajay, at Pair, you guys... We're probably right in the middle of a bunch of this. I know it was a, a very harrowing time for a lot of folks. Talk to me about what that period, like the validation of this platform, I'm sure it made the lives of many folks a lot easier if you were on a platform like the Coterie versus let's say somebody who has you know a dozen VC or other LP investments you know, just spread out all over the place.
3: I think what this speaks to with the SVB debacle is there's value in having... A software product that aggregates all of your different positions mm-hmm. as opposed to relying on one place exclusively. So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. So people pay capital calls to our platform and several of the funds that are GPs on our platform used SVP for their banking. And what happened is when SVB went down and people changed their bank accounts to receive the capital mm-hmm. calls, they were getting their capital call dollars really late because the LPs had not changed the routing of where the money was supposed to go except if they were using the Coterie. Mm. Because every time there's a new capital call issued, we refresh the source destination uh, of the capital call because it's software that's doing mm-hmm. the scraping and that's ultimately sending the money. So the LPs that were on the Coterie were sending their money to the GPs much faster and much more accurately than the LPs that were not on the Coterie. And like it's it's just one of the many examples of why bringing sophistication and technology into this industry Is beneficial for both parties. We're not just servicing the LPs or just servicing the GPs. All right, let's
0: get down to some some other stuff here about let's broaden out the conversation a little bit. Now, Jay, I'd love to kind of get your sense because I know, you know, again, as somebody who built a company and sold it to a very large company, and now you're an investor, you know, you focus on pre-seed and seed. What is it like to meet a founder? And obviously you already knew Ethan, but to kind of invest at such an early stage and then you know, what you did your Series A, uh, I want to say a year and a half ago or, or two, yeah, years ago. two years ago. And so have, uh, you know, an Andreessen and, 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 you know, lead that round and the sort of VCs that participate. What is that like for you uh, as somebody who kind of sees something and, and you get to that period? And I know this is obviously something that you've done again and again and again. And, you know, you've had these sorts of validations. Just talk to us a little bit about that, because again, you know, it, it is a, a very nice stamp of approval when you got to a, a certain
4: scale here. Uh, I'm a very lucky person. I think the best job in the world is to be a founder. I think the second best job is to partner with founders because we get to work with these people who are, you know, visionaries and really trying to create something out of nothing. And Ethan is really one of these types of founders. Let me tell you about You know, when I met Ethan working on Aptiv, I obviously knew him before that. We were friends, but we we weren't really colleagues. We had never worked together. When he wanted to build Aptiv, he was one person. And his first minimum viable product, the first thing that he put out there was he recorded these classes himself and he was sending it to his friends. And, you know, the quality, you know, I I have to say it wasn't very good, but... But a lot of people, huffing and puffing or what? Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was terrible. And you could hear the dog barking in the background. <laughs> and it was just kind of like, you know, a first attempt. Let's just put it that way. But people absolutely loved these classes, right? And, and he had like dozens of people coming up to hundreds of people paying for these like relatively low quality classes. And that told me that there was really something there. There were two things. There was something in the product and there was something in this person that he was really putting himself out there with very little resources and he was connecting with customers. So, you know, we were fortunate to to partner with him on Aptiv and it grew incredibly well. And, you know, when he started the Coterie, he just had this idea. He didn't even have a slide deck. We just talked about it a couple of times. I helped him actually put together the first slide deck to raise the additional capital after pair. But for us, his insight on the customer was so clear. He had thought about it so deeply that it it was clear that it was worth making a bet to see if he was right. He, He started building the team and he got the product out there and got some early customers. It's really A joy to see these companies grow and it's been incredible to see the company grow but at the end of the day i think ethan and i think the same that a company that's growing isn't the end goal the end goal is to build a massive company that withstands, you know, time. It's there for decades. And that's what we're all trying to do Mm -hmm. together. We are fortunate that we get to be one of the first people there believing in people when they have nothing. So that's just a fun part of the job.
0: So Ethan, you've done this twice now. Okay. And so when you think about Ajay and, you know, you've had this experience with him on on two occasions, what is it like how you work with someone who sees that vision from just the very early stage? And then you have some genius folks who come in much later, right, and dealing with companies at different stages and the like. How do you, as a founder, manage that kind of push and pull between the folks that are on your board and the advisors and the like here? And I'm sure, listen, I know lots of people like you have been in the same position. It's not easier managing a lot of different personalities, and a lot of people have different skill sets, and that's why you take, it's not just about money. Folks like you don't have a hard time raising money for great ideas and great businesses like this. You really do want to partner with the sort of people that can help you get to where you want to be.
3: Yeah. I mean, Ajay, I think is right that founders do have one of the best jobs in the world. So I, I, I knew Ajay previously. So he was a founder prior to joining Pear. and he started this company and I was working at, I think I was working at McKinsey or something at the time and I was watching him on his journey and I was like, oh, this is such a different thing than me and I don't understand how he's doing this. And then when I started thinking about my thing, he was the only rational guy I would go to because he's one of the best product people I've ever met. I had to go through it and really like flush it out for two years. It was Nothing for two years. And what was fortunate is that he was the first guy to support me in any way. Like I've said this publicly before, but I had like 120 meetings of no's prior to getting my first yes, which was him. And even though we knew each other before, you don't make investments like that just based on like, I know this guy, like there has to be something there. You know, it was, I I, I think it was your first investment at
4: Pear, is that right? It was, was, yeah, I had just started. Yeah, Yeah, so it
3: was his first investment in a new job. And so I was just so grateful that someone had finally sort of believed in me to make this thing something real. And so, like, you're right, Dan, that once things start catching fire, everyone comes in. You never forget the people that were there early. And Ajay has been there early twice. And I said Aptiv was a double, not a grand slam. So, I, you know, I think paired it okay on it. It wasn't, you know, they've invested in Dropbox and all this other stuff. It wasn't that scale of success. And so the second time came around, naturally, I'm sort of just like throwing ideas around with him frequently. But then... Again, when it was time for me to start my second company, it was like, you know, there's no one else I'm going to go to for the first conversation. And then I was fortunate that they saw it on their side as well, right? So like having someone in your corner, whether things are up or down, especially when no one else sees it, is so rare. And you just got to be so fortunate and grateful to be in that position. Well,
0: let's talk a little bit about the environment. It's early February when we're recording this here. NASDAQ is basically at all-time highs. The S&P is at all-time highs. We've spent a lot of time on the podcast over the last couple of years talking about the sort of lag that the private markets have to the public markets. I had a conversation with my friend Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital and Alexis Ohanian of 776. It sounds like there's some kind of activity brewing a little yeah. bit. There's a little movement. We saw all the data about you know VC and deployment and valuations and the like. And obviously there was this huge rush in 2023 towards anything that was AI related. And it felt a lot like a period that I recall in the turn of the century where you could have been kind of like a, a stodgy little tech company and you put a .com on the end of your name. Yeah, There's a lot yeah. of that going on, right? And we saw it. But what was different this time is that the scale of these, you know, pre-revenue companies that they were raising at and the valuations and, you know, that kind of, I think, sucked a lot of the air out of the room. All right. But now it feels like there's some stuff happening, right? Things are loosening up a little bit. Talk to me uh, a little bit about that. Ethan, I'll start with you because that's an encouraging sign because it's kind of been a long couple of years, I think, in the in the private tech markets here.
3: just spoke about the benefits of being a second time founder. One of the benefits is you're a lot more disciplined with your runway mm-hmm. and you're a lot more disciplined with how you hire your team. And so we raised our last round of funding two years ago mm-hmm. and it was a pretty big round and we had sort of several years of cash. And there was an argument to be made that, okay, you should pour fuel in the fire and just grow like crazy. Mm-hmm. Some of our peers did that. They hired significantly in 20 and 21, and then suddenly 22 comes, and you can do cuts and stuff, but like you're kind of fucked at that point. Mm-hmm. There, there, are, there isn't a lot yeah. that you can do at that point. So I'll, I guess, take some credit here is like, I managed our burn very, very carefully. So even though we haven't raised money for a couple of years, We still have another several years of runway if we don't generate any revenue and we don't do anything going forward. So I think disciplined approach to managing capital Mm -hmm. is critical in tough times and even when times are looking good. And then the other thing I'll say is like, I I think you generally have to build a company with the thought that you're not going to know where the market is going, Mm -hmm. right? So if 24 ends up being a great year, great. Like maybe our growth will be higher than expected but I don't think any of us thought 23 would be the kind of year that it was. Mm -hmm. And we probably also didn't think that 22 would be the kind of year Mm -hmm. that it was. And so I'm not going to be in the business of being a macroeconomic expert and trying to guide my startup to where I think the economy is going to go. I need to be building products and targeting distribution that is agnostic. And maybe I get some fortunate benefits Mm -hmm. from like beta of the market rising, or maybe I get dinged a little more of beta with the market dropping, but I have to focus on alpha, right? Like even though I'm a startup, founder, and I'm a CEO, ultimately, I'm an allocator of capital, right? I have a set of resources, dollars and team, and I deploy those to build a return. And so my job is to figure out how to generate alpha regardless of beta. And so I think founders that try to time the market You know, do things that are fun when the market's up and pull back when it's down, but like that's on the 10% net margin. You really got to run your company as if you don't know what's going
4: to happen because you don't know what's going to happen. I remember the board meeting where Ethan and the board um, decided to make the changes to the runway and the plan. And I have used that example with every single portfolio company in the year and a half since. And it was extremely prudent to do that. And it's incredible the foresight that Ethan had there.
0: As a pre-seed and seed investor, you've been through a few different cycles now since you've been at Pair. Are you less sensitive to some of the things that Ethan was talking about on the macro front? Because again, It sounds like you're really picking founders, right? With great
4: ideas that you have confidence are gonna be able to execute. Okay, so the good thing about being at the very early stage is that in any particular moment, We're insulated from the macroeconomic situation because our companies take 10 years to build. That being said, we have many investments and we have later stage investments as well. And so for those later stage investments, we do need to go in and really think about what does the current market look like? What is it going to take to raise additional capital? If there's no additional capital on the table, how should we plan? And so we actually have both sides that we deal with at there. All right. Well, listen, guys, we covered a lot of ground here. It was really great to kind of go deeper
0: on the coterie. It's interesting because when I met Ethan in the fall at Money 2020, it felt like there was some stuff brewing a little bit in the fintech market. And obviously, the follow through that we've seen, in the public markets. The follow through that we've seen in the economy, it just seems like that the private markets are about to pick up a a little bit here. And and so that's encouraging, I think, for everybody who are listening here and and the like here. But I really appreciate hearing your guys' individual origin stories and how you guys came together and how you did it again. And I look forward to the opportunity of following up on it. So guys, thanks a lot for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Dan.